I'm Matt Howie, and welcome to Hobby Horse. Today with us is Aaron McKean. Hello, Aaron. Hi. <laughs> I like doing um, very little to no research so I can discover your life along with everybody else listening. <laughs> but um, I seem to recall you must have had a, I'm guessing you had a background in college in language of some sort, and then you worked on dictionaries for a bunch of years, and then you launched um, a company and you released WordNick, which is like a really cool, um, you know, word website with APIs that are a lot of bot authors use, like we heard from Darius Kazemi, uh, on a previous show about that. And, uh, let me see what else you were doing some open source ish stuff and developer relations stuff for companies. And, um, oh, and then, yeah, we'll talk about, uh, your hobbies after this but uh i guess how <laughs> accurate was that i i, I think that's like a strong b oh, okay I think, good yeah you, you got the basic timeline right i feel like there's a decade of dictionary-ish stuff is that about <laughs> as long as you worked on that industry or probably more right if you can't wear nick yeah uh, which hasn't stopped right so now i'm going on two decades of lexicography actually more than more than two decades of lexicography i've worked for a children's dictionary at a textbook company and then i worked at oxford university press for about seven years and then word nick since uh officially since 2008 so a decade of word nick sweet and so how do you get started with dictionaries? Because that feels like a thing. Even into my twenties, I was like, "That's a job people get to do." Like, like it seems like thirty people in the world manage all our dictionaries and words and stuff, or something. How would you ever break into that? So, like my ver the nerd version of the radioactive spider story <laughs> is. I actually read an article in the newspaper about the second edition of the OED. And the, the headline of the article was that it was 27 years behind schedule. Wow. And, and for some reason, for like, you know, little kid Aaron, I looked at that and I was like, first of all, people make dictionaries. And secondly, it is such a cool job that they don't care that you are nearly three decades behind schedule. <laughs> Very easy job. Oh, yeah, totally. <laughs> <laughs> How old were you when you read that? Eight. Wow. And uh, I still have the newspaper article. I cut it out of the newspaper at eight years old. You're going to have to explain to your younger listeners what a newspaper is and how you can cut things out of it. Um, <laughs> I, I did the, I, you know, I did the last century equivalent of hitting Command P to print. <laughs> so you went to college with that in mind. Yes, I did. And I perverted all of my classes to be about dictionaries in some way. I got a degree in linguistics Sweet. at the University of Chicago, and I took a class on feminist theory. And my, my paper was about the acceptance of Ms. Hmm. Oh, yeah. It's very easy at Chicago to basically uh, turn all your classes into your obsession. <laughs> and then you really, you lived your dream, right? Like out of college, did you get to the OED? Uh, no, I never worked on the OED. I worked on American dictionaries. Oh, okay. And actually at Oxford, we used to have this joke that no matter what kind of press release we put out about any dictionary that wasn't the OED, the mean time to it being about the OED was under 24 hours. 
<laughs> I, I mean, you say Oxford and dictionary in a sentence, people just automatically put them together. They are definitely the 800 pound gorilla of lexicography, and they have the hardest job. Like, they really have to trace not just what a word means today, but it's kind of like the chain of evidence. They're trying to document every step in a word's meaning from the first time it ever was seen to today. And it takes forever. They really only are able to, like, they release an average of, what, 1,100 new words and senses and subsenses a quarter. So they're kind of like the DSM-4 and 5, like these bodies <laughs> of, like, collected work of an entire, you know, like, it, yeah, like a new version coming out every 10 years is fast for them. Um, what is the dictionary landscape like? Like, what are the what are the feeder dictionaries that lead to the big dictionaries? <laughs> oh, my goodness. So uh, when was it? A while back. It must have been 2005, 6, 7, back in those that time period. Before 2008, I once hosted the every other year meeting of the Dictionary Society of North America in Chicago. And uh, we did it down at the Oriental Institute and it was really fun. And we had 120 some people show up and that was like, oh my goodness, where did all these people come from? And in fact, three of the 120 some people who showed up were a guy and his wife and his daughter. And they all came because the guy's grandfather had been a very famous American lexicographer of the 1930s. Oh, my God. <laughs> yes. And they just thought, oh, this would be a cool way to learn about grandpa. Um, yeah. And that included like a lot of people who study dictionaries academically, some working lexicographers on the kind of dictionaries that, you know, are used every day, people working on, um, the University of Chicago has a lot of dictionaries of Near Eastern languages and civilizations, that they call it. So there's a Sumerian dictionary and a Hittite dictionary and an Assyrian dictionary. I, I, I talked with the editors of the Hittite dictionary and they turn up like, I don't know, a couple dozen new clay tablets every year wow. on which they might find like two or three unattested forms. And I was like, okay, that's the easiest job of lexicography. Of course, they have to go and dig them up. <laughs> literally. They can't just sit behind a computer. Yes, they literally go and dig them up. How is the role of Urban Dictionary in all this? Like, it's 20 years old now. It's kind of like a pretty good dictionary of slang, right? Oh, it's totally a good dictionary of slang. It's like, I love Urban Dictionary. And the person who runs it is also named Aaron, but he's a double A Aaron. So there's something about having this name that draws you to online lexicography. <laughs> But uh, yeah, it's it's really hard to get written evidence of a lot of slang because people just don't write it down. They don't even text it that much. And even if they did, it's really hard to get people to give up their text logs for, you know, academic research. And so I really think it's a marvelous resource. The only caution that I give to people who use Urban Dictionary is to make sure that you like try to get some kind of external validation of a word before you use it, because it's really hard to tell from Urban Dictionary whether something is like used by tens of thousands of people or whether it's like two fifth graders making fun of each other. <laughs> well, I usually go off the votes, but even then, <laughs> I think the the sourcing. Um, I find you know any sort of internety word, um, the sourcing will always you know. If you find it Urban Dictionary, and even if 3,000 people voted up that definition, it'll often be like, some guy in the early 90s said it on Usenet, 
<laughs> like that's there <laughs> sort of and, and everyone goes everyone nods and goes yeah, yeah 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 i remember that from usenet i remember that before blogs right yeah and the weird thing was is that guy was paid full time by arpanet to just come up with stuff <laughs> right. those, those jobs don't exist anymore <laughs> so uh so wordnik has been around for a decade and wordnik um was sort of uh, a company spun out of you and a few friends, right? That were doing like lexicography adjacent sort of things, apps and ideas. Oh yeah. So, well, when I was working at Oxford, which was a great place to work, I basically had the same meeting over and over again, which was like, what about the internet? And <laughs> then I gave a talk in 2007 uh, at Monterey, the TED conference about like, why can't we have a dictionary that's as big as the internet? And there was a guy in the audience, Roger McNamee, who's awesome, and he basically came up to me afterwards and said, I like your idea. That should be a company. So we had a startup. But it turns out that even being the biggest dictionary in the world and ever doesn't actually generate a venture-style return. Mm -hmm. But the investors were amazing, and they basically gave Wordnik to me and said, here, take all this stuff, go make it into a nonprofit. And now we're a 501c3. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah, you can support us by adopting a word. You get your name on it and a link to your Twitter account or your website. And yeah, how much does it cost to like buy a word? For a year, $25. Wow, that's rad. Yes, for, for so much glory. <laughs> I remember when it came out, uh, wasn't, couldn't companies, per, like... Uh, adopt words and support them right oh yeah anybody can we do if you give a word as a gift and the word could be construed as derogatory we do check with your recipient first oh um as you might imagine a lot of people after the election were trying to adopt um some words to refer uh to some folks in the government. And since we didn't have a way to verify that they were, you know, okay with, say, the word demagogue being adopted in their honor, uh, we regretfully had to turn down the donations. In fact, some of the people just uh, adopted them anyway and put them in honor of Anonymous. Oh, man. I'm totally <laughs> going to buy a word for a, for a writer friend for the, her birthday. Um, so, oh, word Nick at this point, it's like a ton of APIs, right? That are used by lots of at least bot authors, right? Bot authors, people making study apps, especially for things like the GRE, people making word games, uh, people making apps that help you cheat at word games. <laughs> oh, right. Give me every seven letter word with an S in it, you know, for Scrabble or something, right? Right. We don't have an API that's specifically that, but I'm seriously considering creating it because a lot of people seem to want that. <laughs> and uh, DuckDuckGo uses us to power their dictionary search. Oh, cool. Like if you say define blank, it pulls up Wordnik? It pulls up Wordnik. Right. They're nice folks over there. What kind of APIs do you have Like besides like Word Lookup? They're like word relationship ones or something? Oh, yeah. You can get synonyms and antonyms and hypernyms and all the nims. And uh, we, have a full, we have a full scope of nims <laughs> for your nimming pleasure. Uh, our, probably our most popular API uh, that's not just standard, give me a definition, give me a pronunciation, give me an example sentence, is a random word one. You can get one random word or 10 random words. And people use that to do all sorts of stuff. Like um, it's very popular for seeding um, uh, passwords, right? Password generators, like um, the cartoon one. 
uh, XKCD. Yeah. Four random words is like more secure than 16, uh, you know, symbols and stuff, right? Yes. And so much easier to remember. Oh my God. You could build a, a Pee Wee's Playhouse uh, magical word of the day generator for <laughs> every 24 hours. And if anyone says it, the first one to say it in your system, you know, they get a prize. That would be... I actually tried to build a chatbot to do that. Um, <laughs> And was doing it in a workshop with a bunch of people, and nobody knew who Pee Wee was, and I was uh, really, really sad. Oh, my um, God. Yeah, the word I used for testing was trombone, of course, because it's just a good word. Yeah. So um, uh, these days you're doing, like, um, uh, API and... <laughs> yeah, I was... Uh, um, I was working at IBM as a developer advocate, uh, doing a lot of stuff with OpenAPI, the API specification formerly known as Swagger. Hmm. Um, but I just started it at Google about a month ago, and I'll be working on um, open source stuff. Cool. cool. Yeah, it's exciting. So somewhere around um, 2005-ish, I would guess, did you, is that about when you started Dress a Day? Yeah. It was so early, it was actually a blogger blog to start with. Oh, my God. Wow. I've, I've been on every major blogging platform and transferred painfully between them. <laughs> we, uh, we Everyone who runs one tries to make it easy, but it never is. No, it never is. <laughs> so when did Dress a Day start? I'm pretty sure it was in 2005. And I followed it sporadically, um, and I had a whole new appreciation for it a few years later when, you know, I'd, like, gotten all up to speed on Project Runway and stuff. Um, <laughs> and, like, I really think you have a superpower. Like, like being able to sew <laughs> your own clothes is so rad. But, like, what drove you to it in the first place to, to make your own clothing? Oh, I learned how to sew when I was about 12. <laughs> I am really picky when it comes to clothes. And my mom was just like, that's it. I'm never taking you to the mall again. I, I hate this. I hate every second of it. You know, <laughs> you have rejected everything there is to be bought in Jacksonville, Florida. And um, so she's like, how about I teach you how to sew? And she made one dress from a pattern that we chose together and fabric that we chose together. And I, I shadowed her, right? I guess that's what they would call it now. And then I made the second dress from the same pattern, different fabric, um, while she kind of hung over my shoulder and said, dear, I really don't think you want to be doing that. And uh, I just never stopped because, like, once <laughs> once you have that level of control freakery, you, it's hard to give up. Like, all of my clothes have enormous pockets, <laughs> which if you follow, like, women's clothing gripes, yes, the yeah. lack of pockets is a big one. Like, I actually have a... a like a challenge, like usually if people are standing around talking about, you know, lack of pockets, I'll say, look, I have more in my pockets than any two men who are standing here. <laughs> like I usually have like a phone and a notebook and a wallet and keys and, you know, all that sort of stuff. It's like my goal really is to be Harpo Marx. Like I want to take like the mannequin leg and the live puppy and the, the telephone pole like out of my pockets. Oh, man. I think I was like 25 and uh, I think I'd grabbed my then girlfriend's jeans and was like, wait, what? Like, wait, <laughs> what? Like, it's a coin pocket. Like, why do they do this? Like, how is this? It just seems ridiculous. Have you seen the? Have you heard the um, Avery Truffleman ninety nine percent invisible about pockets? The history of pockets. I haven't had a chance to listen to it yet, but it has been it has been sent to me so <laughs> times. It's incredible. 
It's, I heard it was really good. It's kind of, I'm saving it's a treat for my next really horrible long flight. Yeah, it probably won't surprise you at all, because I played it for my wife, and she was like, I read lots of Jane Austen. I know all this history. Like, <laughs> like I mentioned all this, like, 1700s, 1800s dressmaking stuff, and she's like, yep, yep, that's what it's called. And I was like, I've never heard any of these concepts or words. <laughs> Right. Ridicule. That's a great word. Exactly. I had no idea what that was until this. But um, uh, I loved, I looked at your uh, blog just a few minutes ago and the, your like sweatshirt fabric travel dress with enormous pockets that like, (laughs) looks like you could put your whole arm in them. Like that should be a product or a Kickstarter or something. That looks like the ultimate travel clothes. Oh, it's so comfortable. I know that I've made the pockets a little bit too big when I have to lean over to reach the bottom of them. (laughs) I was going to say, like, practically, doesn't your phone just slide out if you're like on a plane and your leg goes up or anything? Weirdly, no, because the, I don't know, I don't usually have problems with stuff falling out of my pockets occasionally i'll find that like the the well between the seats of my ancient honda civic is mysteriously full of ballpoint pens (laughs) yeah (laughs) but i don't tend to lose anything else and it's mostly because i keep the pens like clipped to the outside of my pocket so i think the seat belt pulls them out was uh let's go back to your first dress like was was it was it something you liked finally like was it did you love it right away or did you figure out like oh i got a I gotta play with these patterns or they're not quite right. I definitely did some pattern tweaking, like not the like Frankensteinian level of pattern hacking that I do now. It would probably be easier for me to really like buckle down and learn how to draft my own patterns. But I actually prefer just kind of morphing one pattern into something closer to what I want in a kind of like genetic algorithm way. Can you can you figure out fit from just looking at patterns? Oh no. No, I measure stuff. I try it out in fabric that I don't particularly feel like I will cry hot tears if I ruin it. Just kind of inch closer and closer to what I want, mostly because I'm a little bit lazy. Like if I took better measurements and did a lot more math, I could probably cut down on the on the trial and error portion of sewing. <laughs> But I really enjoy, like, sewing more than I enjoy fitting math. So, really, if I'm going to spend my time doing something, I might as well do something that I like. And chances are better than, like, 80% at this point that I'll get something wearable. When I first started sewing, I had a much higher, like, throwaway rate. Mostly because I didn't know a lot about how fabric behaved, so I would pick fabrics that were too stiff or too floppy for what I wanted to make, or that were hard to sew. Classic project runway (laughs) mistake. (laughs) Yes. You know, I have not brought myself to watch that show because I know I would get obsessed and I would also be like, heck, I could do that. And I really don't want to be on a reality television show. (laughs) (laughs) It's so much different than every other reality show in that and it's so well done in that and you could watch it because uh, gosh it's probably been on 13 years in a row now or something um but it really starts out innocent enough you know it's all like like fresh students out of fashion institutes (laughs) and they're making stuff and then it just starts getting better and better really quick and tim gunn is like sort of a mr rogers type like he's a is perfect to 
cast a reality show with a with like a teacher like i think mm-hmm. he taught at um the you yeah know, the it's fashion something or parsons i forget yeah which. i think parsons he was a, a chair maybe eventually but um he's just like super supportive and understanding he gives critical feedback but in the nicest way possible and i don't think you know and then it's weird because the producers really want to make a trashy reality show so <laughs> they amp up you know they use editing to amp up the drama but mostly everyone's supportive of each other it's not you know it's not quite uh british bake-off uh, friendliness but it's not as bad as it as it could be but uh eventually eventually in the last few years it's clear they're just trying to amp it up because in the first um first couple seasons they get you know days and days to make a dress and then weeks and they get months to do a collection and in the end, you know, the last season, it was probably like every dress had to be made in like 12 hours and every collection, like five to seven pieces made in like two weeks. Like, it's just outrageous because they want they want to break people. But but it is it's super creative, right? It's not about personality so much. It's more about, you know, the output and the work and what people are doing. And, and but it is a lot of just people picking T-shirt fabric and that looks terrible on a person or... <laughs> They pick a, sh- a too shiny silk, you know, and it just like it doesn't lay well at all, and like, and it puckers where they sew it, and and like that's just super classic mistake. How many how many dresses do you think you've made at this point? Hundreds, probably. Was it literally dress a day for a while? <laughs> no, I've never literally made a dress a day like on purpose. Uh-huh. Occasionally, I've been like, oh, this pattern's really great. It sews up really quickly. Maybe I will make three of them this weekend, right? Um, I tend to make the same dress over and over again in different fabrics until I get tired of it. <laughs> How many do you own right now that you made? Own, I think probably in like wearable rotation, maybe a couple dozen. And then there are a lot that I've held on to because someday I will be that size again, or I'm going to take it apart and make something different out of it, or I just really liked it and I don't want to let it go yet. Last year, I actually did a purge where I put a big list of things I'd made up on the blog and said, hey, you can... I think I made every dress $20 plus shipping and gave about half of, a little more than half of what I made to Chicago Books for Women Prisoners. And use the other half to buy more fabric, obviously. (laughs) Naturally. Yeah, it was great. Like, I sent dresses, like, to Australia and the UK, and people sent me back pictures of themselves wearing something that I made. No way! Yeah, it was great! And um, I really enjoyed it, and um, I still have zero desire to sew commercially, like, for other people. Like, it just seems like a good way to turn something fun into a job. Oh, yeah, definitely. Have you made anything for your family before? Like, Halloween costumes, at least? (laughs) Have I made Halloween costumes? Um, I have made some Halloween costumes. I've made a couple quilts as wedding presents. Oh, nice. That's terrible. Don't do it. (laughs) Because you have a deadline. Like, and and also quilts are heavy. Uh, (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> like they have to be uh, they're fun to put together uh, I've made some things for my sister kind of by default because she's just enough different in size for me on like one axis that things that don't fit me will probably fit her mm-hmm. like she's going to hate me saying this but she's shorter than I am and so if I make something too short <laughs> it's perfect yeah I was like oh this will, this will fit my sister <laughs> <laughs> I did make a Green Bay Packers shirt for my husband uh, at one point. 
that he cheerfully wore to watch Green Bay Packers games and, and eat buffalo wings. But any shirt that you regularly wear to eat buffalo wings in is got, got a short lifespan by default. <laughs> was it was it like a print, like an Aloha shirt or something? It had like a, there was this time when you could buy like really bad cheap cotton with like NFL like helmet logos on it. Oh. So I found Packers logo stuff, some bad fabric. And I was like, oh, I'll just make, I'll just make Joey a shirt. Yeah, you've got to figure out a way to make those uh, fleece travel <laughs> clothes like available to everyone. Just make a I pattern. I should just submit it to Beta Brand, but I made it from a commercial pattern, from like the Gray Line Pharaoh pattern mm-hmm. with some pocket hackery. I was gonna say you had to add those pockets. The, the the dress actually does have pockets, but they're just not big enough. Mm. Um, and they also are constructed in a weird way where um, it's almost like they're sandwiched between the top and the bottom part of the dress, which is really hard to explain, um, which means there's a lot of extra bulky fabric in there. So I, I, I fixed that. <laughs> I was impressed at how detail-oriented you were. You were talking about like having to use piping versus just rolling over the edge and sewing it. like That's like in a detail I never thought about that, you know, I, I always assume piping sort of like was like <laughs> mocking i guess like an extra piece of fabric or something i love piping and like if 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 future if future people are ever trying to like determine whether or not i made something piping is probably going to be one of one of the checklist items dead giveaways uh, yeah about whether it's you know from aaron mckean or just from the workshop of aaron mckean right <laughs> We found a pile of orange piping here, high, <laughs> high contrast, you know, I think Aaron's been here. Um, oh, totally. Do you tend to, um, like, look for patterns or dresses in a certain style? Um, like, like I was wondering, I don't know, everyone who makes dresses seems to make, like, kind of a 50s style, you know, like classic cuts and stuff, but... Um, my wife has done it before and she says like there's basically nothing available for sale these days like in classic sort of silhouettes and stuff so that's why she occasionally does it is that was that something that ever drove you to oh for sure i made a bunch of stuff for vintage patterns when i got really serious about sewing again after i after i started the blog i was like oh look at all these beautiful dresses and I think that was about the time when, when actual vintage dresses started to get really hard to buy, mm-hmm. um, just because they had been made so long ago and um, the fabrics were tending to split or shatter or they were really stained. Basically, all the good stuff had been bought and you couldn't just walk into any random thrift store in Chicago and buy six fifty dresses for $10 anymore. Yeah. And, um, yeah, so I thought, oh, well, I can make my own from vintage patterns in fabrics that I like in my size, and I won't feel bad about, you know, wearing a vintage dress and destroying it. And, like, vintage dresses tend to have better details. Like, the pockets are cuter, they have collars. Basically, they have a lot of stuff that in um, sweatshop sewing can't be made because they add too much to the price of the garment and most people today they're like if i can't buy this for 12.99 at h&m i'm not gonna buy anything at all which is very sad it comes out in um some of the (laughs) project runway challenges when they try to mass produce something that 
every single thing is like adding six dollars to a dress like every time you sew anything it's just remarkable to think about that i never thought about it that way until you know i got to see it from the inside in those little glimpses um do you think do you think earlier dress designs are more forgiving i'm trying to think what's wrong with today's you know dresses and cuts and stuff is it like performance fabrics and things are like <laughs> tighter or something or they're just so trendy you know like everything's got to be cold shoulder now <laughs> i do not understand the cold shoulder thing at all it's just like the idea of trying to deliberately make myself cold <laughs> and also nothing looks dumber with a backpack nothing oh, i never thought of that <laughs> just anyway i know that's not supposed to be your main consideration <laughs> um i think sizing is an issue like uh it used to be in the 50s you starved and corseted yourself into the size. Mm-hmm. And now people, thank goodness, are having you know more natural bodies. But fashion hasn't really caught up. Mm-hmm. And it's not like men's sizing where it's just like, okay, inseam, waist, and the ratios are going to be basically the same. You could show me a hundred size 14 women and they would all be subtly different size 14s. Right. And I think that size just makes no sense. And until we get like 3d printed and designed clothing, that's, that's really custom. I know there's some cool stuff going on in Japan around that. I think even if I, I was actually thinking about this the other day, like if I could walk into a store and magically have the perfect dress that fit me perfectly, would I still sew? And I think probably yes, because I enjoy the process, Mm -hmm. but I probably wouldn't sew as much. Yeah, I was talking about this once with uh, Crystal Beasley, who who did a Kickstarter and a company. She made like 800 different jean sizes, but they're all going to be cut and sewn like off a machine. So it was okay to have 800 different sizes. Um, But like, I wish there was a, a size system that was universal. Like I... Like, uh, I even talked to a custom shirt maker once in New York who made me some shirts, you know, for like a hundred bucks each-ish or so, that like, can't we come up with like, I don't know, 17 maybe measurements, like, like some universal system, like how, how big, how long is your upper arm and how big is it around your lower arm, your lower leg, your upper leg, you know, your waist, you know, your, your, um, chest, like, it feels like with computers and, you know, like CAD, you know, operated, you know, cutters and sewers, like it should be possible to make like perfect jeans in, you know, 20 minutes or something just based off a scan of, or like measure these seven places on your body and then give me the numbers into a form and I'll, I'll give you jeans in a day. Like, I don't know. Does it, does that, does that seem possible? Like within our grasp? I it should be possible the stuff that i've read about that's coming out of japan is they send you basically something that looks like a morph suit <laughs> and it's it's wired and it, you put it on and it takes your measurements and then you send the suit back and they work from that whoa so it's like a grid of metal inside of like clothing or something i just assume they're like m- magical nano gnomes <laughs> that are doing the measuring uh, because people are generally really terrible at taking it own measurements right yeah or you can almost do it with like maybe there's like 
like like um, sweatpants that have like a grid and ping pong balls on them, and you take a photo hey. with an AR app, and it would just know what size you are. They do that too. I think there's like mocap for the home, right? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I guess that's what isn't Levi's. They do some sort of 3D body scan in some of their San Francisco stores, I think. Yes, and they've tried to do this 3D body scan and commercialize it for a long time, but they keep forgetting that people don't actually want to know what they look like. Yeah, yeah. It's if you, everyone has some kind of body dysmorphia where yeah. they're like, I don't look like that because <laughs> you only see yourself in mirrors and you're flipped, right? Yeah, you don't have to show me. Just just make the <laughs> jeans for me. The other thing is weird is like, I know men's jeans have definitely uh, like great inflation. Like like a thirty four is no longer a thirty four. It's like a thirty eight or Vanity something. Size. And when you see your real measurements, like when I got a suit measured out, I was like, what? There's no way my waist is that big. And they're like. It, it it is for real it's just <laughs> <laughs> that's actually a great thing about sewing is that I often just make the same pattern over and over again and um, almost not quite eyeball it but I'm really only dealing with like an inch at a time so I don't really know what size I am at any given point I just know which dresses fit and which dresses are a little too tight or too loose how long do the dresses last after you make them? Like with, I mean, are you using like cheap fabrics or expensive stuff? I tend, I, I, I use fabric that's probably a little more expensive than I should. I really love Liberty of London fabric, which is super expensive, but it lasts forever. And um, especially the wool cotton mix is just perfect. How many yards and what are you paying a yard here? <laughs> oh my goodness. Um, usually for a dress, I need about three yards four yards if it's pretty narrow liberty can cost like 30 bucks a yard yeah that seems 20 30 yeah. bucks seems like decent price yeah i like to if i can and if i could get to london which i'm pretty lucky to be able to do like once every 18 months or so there are places that sell liberty um one of them is called shaw cat and they basically are a giant basement full of last season's Liberty fabric. Oh, nice. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's an amazing place. So it's like a third of the price or something? Yeah, it's still pretty up there. It's like maybe 12 or 15 pounds a meter. Oh, okay. So depending on the exchange rate, it's really like maybe a 20% discount. Um, and they will grudgingly refund your fat. <laughs> <laughs> so like... It's costing you 60 to $90 just in fabric. So I guess this is why I would assume, I mean, I tend to see custom dresses on Etsy for like 500 bucks or something. It seems, well, that's a lot of money, but that is a lot of, like that's someone's time plus 90 bucks worth of fabric. That kind of makes sense. Yeah. I don't always sew with Liberty. Um, I would love to. I buy a lot of cheaper fabric online. Like denim's usually only like, Denim or chambray is like three to six bucks a yard. Novelty prints tend to be like, <laughs> they, they tend to go out of fashion. I just bought some cotton lawn that has a, it's black with a print of little white lobsters on it. <laughs> because, and I think I'm going to do like hot pink piping to have that little chaparelli nice. nod. Um, yeah, but like not everybody wants to have a lobster dress. <laughs> so that fabric was pretty cheap. <laughs> you tend to wear prints, right? Every time I see you, you I seem to be in a print. I love prints. Yeah. Like, I just, I like color. 
I tend to make more dark dresses now just because I'm on the BART a lot. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> Stains. <laughs> um, there's not a lot of there's not a lot of pale colors that can survive the BART, but um, I do love I do love ridiculous prints. I bought one last time I was in Portland of that's like a border print that's very spooky, like dark branches against a gray background. Ooh. Yeah, I'm looking forward to that one. Nice. Was the most complex uh, thing you've sewn to date? Oh. Like, what was the hardest project? I made a dress to wear to a friend's wedding. Gosh, like twenty some years ago now. That was um, was a little too advanced for my skills at the time. But it was this beautiful ivory colored silk with a floral pattern, and it had a button placket with glass buttons and a collar. I made a matching hat. Um, and it was, it was horrible because I had to sew it in the summer for a summer wedding in Chicago with na- no air conditioning. So I was trying not to like drip sweat all over it. <laughs> and um, uh, the fabric was super slippery. So I ended up having to unpick all the seams, probably each one twice. Oh no. Yeah, and it was very expensive fabric, and I had bought basically 97% of the fabric I needed for the dress. Uh-huh. So there was a lot of, like, creative geometry and cutting out the pieces, which meant that there was, like, one significant piece that was kind of off-grain. So, yeah, it was very difficult, and I would never do it again. <laughs> I tend to make less fraught things now. Can't, have you ever made, like, pants? Like, those seem extremely difficult right there's a reason that i wear only skirts and dresses (laughs) i i don't think i've worn pants like on purpose other than for like yoga in probably a decade and um, that's how hard they are to sew that's how hard they are so i did make one pair of linen pants that by some fluke turned out so beautifully that i wore them until they literally fell apart and I thought about, I probably kept them for like three years after that, thinking I was going to take them apart and make a pattern from them because they turned out so beautifully. And then, uh, then I basically had a baby and was like, oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, term of heart, I don't know, farm it out to somebody else or something and have a dozen perfect pairs of pants. Yeah, I almost feel like it was kind of a these conditions will never all come together again, like some kind of conjunction of the planets. <laughs> perfect fabric, perfect sewing, perfect everything. Yeah. So um, how it, how hard is it to get started with sewing? Um, I feel like I know a couple hundred people and only one or two <laughs> people know how to sew. And like, like they're either brought up doing it you know as a kid or or that's it i have a, i have one friend in his like 30s right now that's learning how to sew dress shirts like for, just for the heck of it as a weekend project and he's making his own you know like suit and tie kind of shirts and it's fascinating oh, yeah. it's fascinating to watch him on instagram like week by week understand how like this is how a shirt pocket works and this is how <laughs> like the sleeve is so hard to build but you know i'm getting better at it These are tough <laughs> So how should how could one middle-aged person get started today? I think it's easier to learn how to sew now than it ever has been. 
there's like are you gonna say youtube i'm gonna say youtube there's a gajillion hours of video and there's also like paid video platforms if you want to take like structured classes oh really oh yeah yeah and it used to be what are they called craftsy has one um lots of people who make who draft their own patterns and sell them also do classes that show you how to make their particular pattern like sew alongs oh gosh do you buy like oh i guess you can't like buy a pdf and print it because it's too large yeah you do (laughs) doesn't it seem large it seems like too large to print your own so you print it and then you tape it together they tile them for you oh my god that's smart and there are companies like one is called pattern z that you send them the pdf that you bought and they print it on fancy pattern paper for you and send it to you in the mail it adds like five bucks ten bucks to the cost of the pattern but like it depends wow. on whether you want to spend your Saturday afternoon sewing or taping printer paper together. This is a story that should be as big as Kindle stuff because <laughs> it seems like you could make a pattern. How much are patterns like one to five dollars or something or more? Oh, no. Independent patterns could be like 20 bucks. Oh, OK. But selling a PDF passively with like PayPal, like that's kind of amazing. You like, you know, make sales while you sleep. Yeah, drafting them is hard though, and yeah. and so people who sew tend to be very critical of patterns that are drafted badly. You can go to patternreview.com, <laughs> and people will be like, "This was terrible." Um, there's a forum for everything. <laughs> there's a forum for everything. So patternsy, and they have online classes. Like, should your first machine be like a hundred bucks? Is good enough to get going, or what? I would not buy a machine until you really wanted to sew. There are places that you can rent a machine by an, by the hour. There's one in San Francisco, like on Polk Street somewhere, called something like Sips and Sews, and they sell you tea and time on a sewing machine. Whoa, I'd never heard of this. That's rad. Yeah, I know there are similar places in Brooklyn. Most big cities have a place where you can rent a sewing machine for a couple hours. Uh, lots of maker spaces have them, but also people sewing machines at maker spaces. Sometimes people tend to like sew PVC on them or like, <laughs> you know, tin foil or right. whatever. So you want to be careful before you put your silk through it. Um, where else can you sew? Um, you can buy garage sale uh, sewing machine, right? <laughs> you can you can buy a pretty decent machine straight off Amazon for four hundred bucks, mm-hmm. and anything that's a lot cheaper than that will probably be frustrating to use and if it's like branded with hello kitty or barbie or something run away (laughs) because the money they spent on getting that license is money they did not spend on making a quality machine oh right what are the first sort of projects that they do in tutorials like pillows or something simple most people who start sewing really want to make stuff to wear Mm -hmm. so like a-line skirts are really good because you only have to fit them at one place like the waist and you know the hips are usually pretty free mm-hmm. um men have a harder time because most men's clothes is pretty tailored other than t-shirts and starting sewing with knits is probably a one-way ticket to like <laughs> frustration town right it's too soft it would just bunch up yeah it's really floppy and it's hard to get the stitch length right and and also, like, it's hard to cut. Cut Like, 90% of sewing is cutting it outright because you really only get one chance. Mm-hmm. Like, once the fabric's cut, the fabric is cut. And you can't uncut it. There's no control Z. <laughs> do you have a dress form, you know, that's your size and everything to test stuff on? or? Do you just no, I have it? a dress form, but I mostly use it just to put dresses on to take pictures <laughs> for the blog. Um, 
I have another dress form that's like decorative and um it's actually kind of appalling because like for a long time I had a super old like vintage prom type dress on it like lots of beading and and uh for some reason my spouse decided to also hang a monkey mask on it so it really (laughs) disturbed people who walked into our house without warning um and it's probably the reason that we have not, you know, knock wood been broken into ever because like people just look in the window and there's like a looming like horror oh, movie. Yeah, it's pretty bad. So um, wait, so let's go back to when you're starting out. Uh, I mean, is it possible to make a simple dress in, with, you know, maybe a few hours of watching online videos? Oh, yeah. Um, I think you also have to just... Um, accept that the first thing you make is not going to be anything like your vision of what you wanted to make. (laughs) Someone who commented on my blog once said that her mom always used to say, nobody will notice on a galloping horse. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, okay, that's oddly specific, but it's true. You know, most people are not checking to see if your hem is even or your stitching is even as long as you're mostly covered and like one sleeve isn't three times the length of the other one. And even then that can be a design decision, you know, <laughs> um, just wear it with intention. Like I meant to do this <laughs> and you'll feel a lot better instead of having that dream in your head of like, Oh, this is what my perfect garment would have been. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you left out the pockets, in which case just, you know, tear it all apart. Start it. <laughs> Um, let me see any last uh, words of wisdom to share. I really enjoy sewing, but I also realize that I'm really privileged to be able to sew. Like my eyesight's still pretty good. I, you know, I have enough disposable income and space like that. I have probably enough fabric to last me now until the till for the rest of my life. <laughs> and I never have to like go to the store because. I don't have the right button because I have enough buttons to like drown a small animal in buttons. And, and when I think people, when they're trying to encourage other people to sew, they often forget just how many advantages that they already have. Right. If you're starting from nothing, you live in a studio apartment, you don't have space for a good ironing board. You, you, you know, don't necessarily have space to store a lot of fabric. It's a lot harder to get started than for somebody who lives in the suburbs and has a garage. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Like, um, I'm a big cyclist, right. With like half a dozen bikes and like, (laughs) that is a remarkable amount of privilege to have extra garage space for all that stuff. And like, I have 30 pieces of specialized clothing that hang in a second closet because there's so much stuff, you know, and just cleaning it requires, you know, monster amounts of space to be able to let them hang to dry and stuff yeah that's why i think that you know it's like renting a machine in the city is probably the way to go yeah because you can start small and you don't have to feel like you have to make an investment and at the same time you have a better experience because the sewing machines at these places are higher quality the Mm -hmm. iron is better like lots of people skimp and buy a ten dollar (laughs) iron honestly you need a hundred dollar iron and that sounds ludicrous. Who needs a $100 iron? But the difference between the $10 iron and the $100 iron is more than $90 worth of, like, satisfaction. <laughs> what, what is the difference between a $500, well, a $100 sewing machine and a $1,000 sewing machine? Usually embroidery. Like, you really have to spend 
a lot to get good embroidery, but I don't ever do embroidery. Like a $500 sewing machine will have better timing. You'll have more options of needle position, like how far left and right the needle can go, which can make a big difference if you sew a lot of piping. And also it'll, it'll sew more and more different kinds of fabric. Like it won't chew up light silks and it won't like stutter and die at heavy denim Mm -hmm. because it'll have a better motor. Nice. And another thing that's great about places where you can sew by the hour is that you can try out a couple different brands of sewing machines and figure out which one seems the most intuitive to you. Like if you have to haul out the manual every time you have to thread it, you're going to dread sewing. Yeah. That's rad. (laughs) (laughs) It's a lot of fun, though. And the satisfaction when people say, I love your dress, where did you get it? And you say, I made it. That level of smug is hardly ever attainable. (laughs) Otherwise. You must say that like five times a week. (laughs) I only will say it if someone asks me where I bought it. Because I don't want them, I don't want to lie and say, oh, just Google it because they will never obviously find it. Well, yeah, every event I've ever been to, you're in a really cool dress and someone is always thinking it or, or you know, wanting <laughs> to ask you. Uh, I'm kind of like the opposite of Thoreau. I think if, if, if an event doesn't demand new clothes, it's not worth going to. <laughs> new clothes you made. Yeah, and I love stunt dresses. Like, if I could be Mrs. Frizzle and just, like, have a thematically appropriate dress for everything I ever have to do. That would, that would make me so happy. Life goal. Oh, totally. <laughs> All right. Thanks for uh, talking today, Erin. Uh, it, uh, it was great to hear about uh, everything. Oh, thanks so much. Thanks so much for having me. Is there anything you want to plug? Oh, if people really would love to adopt words on Wordnik, um, we have more than 8 million words, <laughs> of which only a few hundred have been adopted. So there's a lot of scope. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does only only one person gets one word, or can multiple people sponsor? Only only one person per word. Although I suppose if you wanted to get together like a tontine and adopt a word as a group, <laughs> <laughs> and the last one standing gets to own the word. Yeah. Or I guess can you can you squat a word, wait for them to stop paying for it, and then you can get it the next year. Uh, nobody's tried that yet because there's just so many words to choose from that they're basically like okay i'll go to the next one wordnik is case sensitive though so sometimes people if they're thwarted in getting the lowercase version of the word where usually most of the data lives they will sometimes adopt the uppercase version Hmm. Uh, are you uh speaking anywhere coming up i'll be at devrelcon in london uh (laughs) next week oh geez you're gonna buy some fabric I'm going to buy so much fabric. Extra suitcase <laughs> space. Um, all right. Awesome. Thanks a lot, Aaron. You're welcome. Thank you. The theme music for the show is Samaritan by The Long Winters on the album Putting the Days to Bed, and that's courtesy of Barsuk Records and John Roderick. This show is sponsored by Fireside.fm, uh, the best and easiest podcast host i've ever used if you host podcasts definitely check it out at fireside.fm thanks